0: For custom coders, sometimes it's hard to look past the day-to-day, but having even a basic business plan is essential for setting goals for growth and manifesting a brighter tomorrow, especially when it comes to bringing in more revenue, expansion, or even drawing in the right kinds of employees and customers. Today's expert has been helping businesses and coaching people with these same problems for over 40 years. He is here to explain the four winning principles Elon Musk's SpaceX used to get launched from garage to 6,000 employees and covers some other refreshing approaches you have yet to hear. Get ready to level up your powder coder game. Welcome to Ross Coates Powder Coater Podcast. I'm your co host, Kim Scott, where we interview influencers and talk about trending topics so you can grow your powder coating biz. Today's guest is Jim Castaliga. And we have, I found him on Tim Pennington's Paint and Coatings website, it's an online magazine. He regularly writes, as a guest writer, and he talks about strategic planning, business, and marketing. He's a coach that helps people in the powder coating industry, and in fact, all industries. Jim, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here today.
0: So you wrote an article, and I'm going to share my screen really quick, just so people can Hit it right away with why I called you onto the show. This is from Finishing and Coding Magazine. This is Tim Pennington's online magazine, and you occasionally write here. And you wrote six secrets to strategic planning for finishing and coding shops. And I, of course, went gravitated to that right away because there's a lot of things that are different in manufacturing for us versus a lot of other manufacturers or a lot of other business types of businesses. So I wanted, to, I reached out to you and And I thank you for coming on the show because you are the first coach that we've ever had. And you still do coaching for people. We'll make sure to get all your contact information at the end of the show and where people can find you and stuff like that. So, this particular article talks about six secrets. And your secrets are not complicated, they're actually really simple. And I think that's the whole approach to your business Street Fighter consulting business that you have, correct? Yes. And so let's go through some of the uh, strategic planning answers or secrets that you're going through. And that is keep things very simple and straightforward. I think that is a first one that everybody needs to remind themselves, even though it's simple all the time, when you're covering strategic planning. And we're going to dive a little deeper into how to do strategic planning, how to maybe simplify your business plan. And number two is model to guide you and your team. Welch's five slides. What's that about?
1: Jack Welch of General Electric just had five slides that he would use that when you came in with a strategic plan, it all had to be on these five slides. And that's how simple he kept it. So that's the basic idea. And the number one thing is just to make sure strategic planning, I think for most business owners, Kim, they just don't have time to make complicated plans. And so what happens is they never do strategic planning. I have clients who've been in business for 25-30 years who've never sat down at the beginning of the year at the end of one year and for the next year prepared a strategic plan and now they do it now because I taught them how to do it and I work with them and it it makes a huge difference. Eisenhower of course is famous for saying that plans are useless, but planning is everything.
0: Good point. And I think that's, maybe that's the secret to today's talk is why does it matter? Why does strategic planning and coming up with future goals for your business, why does it matter for people?
1: It matters for a number of reasons. Number one is, is if you have employees, it gives them direction. Because one of the things that you're doing is your direction is so important because people, when they come to work for you, they say, where are we going? And they want to know, where are we going? Because otherwise what it is, it's a journey without a map. And what happens if you go on a journey and you don't have a map? The chances of you getting lost
0: multiply. (laughs) Yeah. And that's when you start to lose money. You start to lose employees.
1: Right. So Um, bottom line, profits fly out the window because you're going to have wasted energy. You're going to have wasted effort. You're going to waste time. You're going to waste money. And you're going to have a massive amount of waste throughout the organization. Because remember that these problems run throughout the organization. So you want to have this direction. And you can call it a strategic plan. You can call it a plan. I don't care what you call it. The idea is if I say to you, Kim, where are you going? You can tell me this is where I'm going. This is where I'm taking my company. And you cascade that information down to your people. Okay. Yeah. A lot of times I find people will have a vision, but the people down the line don't know what the vision is.
0: Yeah. If it can't, if the employees don't know or the end of the line people don't know, how do you make that? I'm always into the circular return of things. It keeps everyone on the same page. But if it's running well, if and your core values are repeated throughout the entire organization, I think it it contributes to how customers are even just naturally attracted to you. Right. Just the way you answer the phone.
1: Yes, it does. And core values are a component of your direction. And basically, core values very simply are, what do you stand for? What do you stand for? It's that simple. And what what do you value? What do you stand for? And that's why one of the most important things you can do in hiring is hire people for their values, because people's values don't change. Very much. If you're a thief when you're 13 years old, you're going to be a thief when you're 23, and you're going to be a thief when you're 43, and you're going to be, you know, etc. Yeah. So, so the idea is, if honesty is one of your values, you want to make sure that you hire people who have that share that
0: same. That is so. That's biblical. That's so core to, and I think that people get rushed, or the hiring process has been complicated lately, just because there's just maybe a lack of uh, people out there looking and seeking for jobs and the foam rises to the top. It's been difficult. And yet, as a business owner, you still want to stick to those core values, even in uh, the midst of a hiring crisis.
1: And and Kim, just as a note about hiring, because this is something that I have clients come to me and it's, I would say that this is one of the biggest challenges that they have. And one of the biggest challenges that they have, and I hear this frequently, is the owner of the business is not satisfied with the performance of one of their key people. And I won't say, I'm, maybe I am proud of this, is I have a number of people who come and say, I want you to work with this person and tell me what we should do and how we can have them productive. And a lot of times within a month or two months, that person is gone.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because I move fast and my clients like that. And so the thing is, you want to know, how do I hire? And the most important thing in hiring is to, and again, I've done this with many of my clients and it's sometimes it's like pulling teeth. But I help them and we work on it together, and they absolutely love it. And what it is when you have a role or a position in a company let's say you have a director of quality, okay, in, in the finishing and coding business. And what you wanna do is you wanna sit down and say, okay, what do I want this role to accomplish? And I call those performance objectives. And you wanna take those performance objectives and make them SMART. And and the acronym SMART, everybody's heard SMART. There's different ones. Mm -hmm. The one I use is specific, measurable, action-oriented, not achievable, action-oriented, result-based, and then time-bound. So you make SMART performance objectives. And all you need, because every role in a company, Kim, has between, I would say, five to eight SMART POs, smart performance objectives, that if that hire accomplishes those, you and I would consider them successful in that role. And I have yet to come across a client that has clear, smart performance objectives. What they do is they've got a job description, but those aren't performance objectives. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to accomplish. It's a performance objective. And if you have those, when you sit down and talk to somebody, because remember what you're doing when you're hiring. When you're hiring, what are you trying to do? You're trying to predict future performance. The best predictor of future performance, Kim, is that the person has done that performance objective in the past. If you talk to me about you know coaching or about workshops, I can talk to you for hours about that. Because I've been in that industry for forty-four years, so the best way. So now you have a performance objective, and what you do to your person that you're looking at hiring is you sit down with them and you say, "Here's the number one performance objective. Tell me about a time when you've accomplished something similar. If they've done it, they'll be able to tell you all about it, and you have this great conversation."
0: Yeah, I think that when you go from your company is starting to reach into this growth, you have the five stages of business, which most businesses are in the struggle or a startup situation where they're just getting started and then they hit this growth. And it's hard because it seems like we're in either growth or survival mode. (laughs) A lot of us were, some of us were surviving in 2020 and stuff like that. And now we're hitting this growth ceiling. or not ceiling, but just we're hitting the top of the growth and we're seeing, okay, how can we push this forward with hiring employees? So my thing is if we're going to grow, we need to hire a team and we need to get our processes down. Because Ross and I know what the processes are, but we've never put them down on paper. So we've done a lot of the core stuff, like the core values and the mission and some of these other ones. But I think we're ready for this next level, which is where we're talking about what you're talking about, which is your performance and SMART goals, outcomes and stuff. Or what does failure look like too on an opposite side? Like this is what a failed part looks like. This is what we don't want. Let's get it to what we do want. So sometimes you have to look at the negative first before you understand what the positive or the positive outcome is too. And I think that there's this kind of, sometimes businesses flop back and forth between surviving and growth models. It just depends on their area, how the local economy is doing and lots of other factors, whether they're marketing themselves properly or attracting the right customers in the first place.
1: One of my mentors says that growth can be business pornography. It looks good when you think about it, but you don't realize what it's like if you do grow. Imagine if you grew your business two times or three times. And I tell people, I said, you think you got problems now? Wait till you've tripled your business. (laughs) And I actually have a down the road here, Kim, I have a graph that I can show because we worked with in the late 80s, we built our company and uh, we built it in today's dollars. It was about $30 million. Okay. When I started, there were 10 of us. And when I left 13 years later, we had 110. That's how much we
0: grew. That's good growth.
1: And as we grew, we were again out in California and we had access to USC and UCLA and what have you. And so we brought in Dr. Larry Greiner, who used to teach at Harvard, and he's renowned for his idea of the growth and crisis stages. And I have a graphic that you can I can show here when appropriate. And one of the things you want to understand is that as you grow at each stage, you're going to hit another crisis. And, and that's just, but knowing what that crisis will be is really helpful.
0: I, I always think of the people that win the lottery. Do you always hear their stories? Right. They just always either they always end up losing their money. It's so sad yeah. because they don't they weren't expecting it or maybe they were expecting it. And then it just com- the money just compounds the problems that they had in their own life. You know,
1: well, we can um, probably say they didn't have a plan.
0: They didn't have a plan. Exactly. <laughs> it's one thing to win the lottery and stuff. Yeah. And so it, In continuing on with this particular article, and we'll wrap this up here, and then I want to move over to this other thing you sent me on the Elon Musk SpaceX program talk that you attended, because I think that's really even more just simple and basic and so easy to understand and it kind of approaches it from a personal angle. But the next one on this list here in the six secrets is we talked about refer to the plan regularly and you do have to visit it. I would say at least technically you should be looking at it either monthly or quarterly. And then of course, reviewing it at the end of the year too, or doing at least once a year, consider the background of the people involved in planning process and their biases, Yes, the hip shooters versus the snipers, the variety of value systems the various perspectives?
1: Yes, because your people are going to have different perspectives and biases. We're all biased in some way or in multiple ways. And and people have different ways of making decisions. People have different ways of competing. Some people are highly competitive. Some people are in the middle. Some people are not competitive at all. So you just want to take into account the individuality of the people doing the planning. And what what their biases are. Again, if you have a team that, that let's say George Patton, who was a great combat commander but a horrible strategic planner. He never if Eisenhower and Patton had switched roles, it would have been a disaster.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So imagine that you've got a team and they're all George Pattons. <laughs> well, you're gonna run into some problems there. A good team, you should have already good various perspectives, some people that tend to make decisions quickly, and I call them the hip shooters, you know, they get a little bit of information, they say, yeah, Bo, here's a decision. And then some people that take more time in making a decision. So it's balancing those as the leader and using this both of those strengths, because remember that being decisive is a great leadership talent and skill and strength, but it has an upside and a downside. Yeah. Now, and the reverse is true. If you take a long time to make a decision, there's benefits to that, but there's a downside to that as well. So you're balancing these factors out as the leader of the team, and you're recognizing that we have these different, we have the hip shooters, we have the sharp shooters, we have the people that aren't decisive. We have the people that like to mull over things more. We have people who are highly competitive and people who aren't. And and what they'll tend to do is they'll tend to rub each other the wrong way because it, it's a person who sees the world differently than we do.
0: Yeah, I think I always laugh about me and Ross because we we both have some pretty different leadership qualities. I don't really want to say that I manage people very well. I'm one of those hanging out over here kind of people, but Ross is really good with teaching people. He's really good with leading people and that we discovered that early on in other businesses and and jobs that we had in our youth. When we're walking down the street and there's like a trash can in the sidewalk, in the middle of the sidewalk, I'll go left, he goes right. And then we come around the other side. It's at times we can have conflicts, but in the end, we all come and arrive at the same destination. We always come back together and meet the goal somehow. And having a nice um, door right here (laughs) is a nice Barrier space barrier, and I think it's just because we have two really strong energies, and when they get close on certain things, it, it can get explosive. <laughs> the outcome is the same we produce quality and uh, customer service and quality product, it, the goal gets there.
1: I think that one of the most important things is if you look, what are the you know 10 commandments of having a successful business? To me, one of the most important things right up front number one number two is to know what your strengths are okay and I use an instrument that measures my clients' performance relevant strengths and where they're vulnerable to making mistakes and I use that tool because I'm number one familiar with assessment instruments there's a bunch of them out there and I wanted one that told me and gave me feedback and information about a client's strengths and performance strengths and weaknesses okay so in once I have them complete that I know in 5 minutes what where their strengths are and what where they're vulnerable to making mistakes and it doesn't have to take me 3 months to learn that and the feedback that I get from clients who start to learn this really subtle stuff is so powerful and it transforms them typically what will happen is the people around them will start saying hey i notice that you don't yell anymore what are you doing or i notice that you're more calm or i notice x or i notice y because the person themselves doesn't really notice it right but the other people around them start to really notice. And what's happened is the person has identified their strengths and they're starting to leverage them. And and yet they're also seeing how that in the seeds of our strengths are the seeds of our own destruction. Again, if you're a person, for example, that likes to take charge, who likes to be in control, who likes to take control, who likes to be in command, that's a great leadership trait. But can you back off when your performance environment demands it see one thing about performing and that's what we're all doing is we're all in these performance environments and what happens in performance environments is demands are made on our us psychologically and our attention and if you look at the best athletes in the world The best athletes in the world, the Olympic gold medalists, the world champions, they have this uncanny ability to focus their attention, okay, and they don't get rattled. They can stay calm under pressure, and they can perform. And they don't lose their cool, they don't choke. That's what these Olympic gold medalists do. And so what's happening is they're performing in that environment. They're meeting the demands, the performance demands of that environment, attentionally and psychologically.
0: Yeah. And they probably have a great team behind them, too, that allows them to not have to worry about the little stuff. They just go where they're supposed to go and do what they're supposed to do. That's a clearly defined pathway.
1: But still, the fact that they... Understand that their performance environment makes demands on them. And this is something that all of your entire audience should know is that performance environments make demands on us. And your ability to meet those demands is going to be will tell you how well you're going to perform in that environment. Okay. And it's really important to know what are my strengths? What are my performance strengths? And what are my weaknesses? Where am I vulnerable to making mistakes? Where am I Vulnerable, for example, to not let other people have the floor. If I'm a person that's comfortable being in command or control, can I in a meeting, can I let other people take charge? And a lot of people that have very strong command talents struggle with that. They struggle with delegating, for example. But when they start to learn that, they start, they can now they can calm down and relax and let other people take charge or they can delegate or words, they expand their capabilities.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's very interesting to me. So that's why for me, probably the top commandment is know yourself, know your strengths, know where you're vulnerable to making mistakes.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, that's powerful. And,
1: yeah. And then the second thing is now. Know the same thing about your team. What are their strengths? Where are they vulnerable to making mistakes? And just those two things alone, if you knew that, it, it has a dramatic impact on an organization,
0: yeah. and it's like taking an objective view, not being within yourself, but looking down from mile high, okay, I can see what we're what how we're doing it, what where we're failing, where we're. Accelerating,
1: Kim. the other thing that's really cool about knowing this information is now you can start to predict behavior. Now, other words, you can predict the behavior of your team in certain performance environments. How would you like to know how to do that? How great is that? That you can predict how a director of quality, for example, will interface with people on the shop floor. And you can predict that.
0: Yeah. And finishing is tough because we're always at the end of the line. There's always this something got delayed or things come up during the week that weren't kind of part of the whole product finishing process from start to finish, whether the customer delivered it late and now it's got to get done five times faster yes. to still meet the deadline of the other end, yeah. your own deadline. Or sometimes it's just because we have a couple of different sized ovens. A lot of times it's just we have we've got some really big gates and railings coming in and then we have we have to adjust or adapt to really small, detailed work like automotive and stuff like that. And so yeah. custom coders have this extraordinary capability to do pretty much anything, but at the same time when projects come in and sometimes the rhythm is good. And sometimes I've seen it where the rhythm is totally off and and it's, and he's much better at it. But when we were learning the business, some kind of a variance in the flow of work coming in or leaving or coming, whatever really could really messed with us. This was past when we got through most of the equipment work through and making sure things were working properly, that then we went into this project management problem solving thing. That, that seemed to be the next thing after we figured out how equipment worked and how re- the basic restoration of metal happens. We probably at some point probably should sit down and write out What are the stages of how you go from a garage coder to having your own job shop? Because it just seems like there you see the people in the group forums on Facebook and and stuff that they're having this problem. And I can actually already identify what stage they are in their learning process just based on their question that they're asking. It's fascinating, actually. Yeah. But getting back to number five on your article here. I like this one, of course, Identify. I use the, I think we've talked about Traction, the book Traction on our show before. I'm going to bring it up again. It's a great book. I think it came out like not recently, but like 2000 and I think 2018 or 17 or something. It was a newer book. But the way that the guy writes is, oh yeah, you got the book there. That's cool.
1: I'll tell you the copyright. 2011. Oh, 11.
0: Okay. Okay. You figure by now everybody's written everything about business, writing business, how to run a business. It just, but the simplicity that this author writes about. And so he's got a thing that we use and I'll share my screen. And this is what we use. It's the it's from the book you can get a free copy from it from the book as well they give you that and it's the vision traction organizer and it's just a two-pager thing which is so nice because it's in a sense it's like a business plan or a business strategy on two pages so there's no excuse not to have this because If you could spend even five hours on this thing, if you needed to spend five hours on it or even 10, that's still a lot less than writing out a whole business plan and all of that. So it's like a modern day business plan in a sense that it's achievable. It's so achievable. And I think that it just, even if you can't answer all of these, you can still get there by trying to come back to it. Maybe every three months when you've learned something new about yourself or about your business and about your customer, too, that you can continue to add to it. It doesn't necessarily have to be one and done kind of thing.
1: Let me interject here that one of the things that's good about this kind of thing is it allows you to get stuff out of your head and down on paper. And writing things down on paper is so powerful. And I'm going to recommend to your audience, if they haven't sat down and written out what their vision is, okay to, to just sit down there and and do that because it's so powerful because the humans are goal seeking animals and by clarifying what it is that you want to do you'd be amazed at how stuff comes out of the woodwork
0: Yeah, just Mm. simply writing it out and getting it out of the brain. For the visual people, the visual sequencing kind of people, they have that vision of that store or that showroom or that job shop with all the equipment and everything like that. And they can see the end product, but it's this filler stuff that's really important because it's not just enough to have that grand vision or that dream. Yeah, it helps you get there. Ross and I, I think our two things is he's the vision person and I'm the implementer. I know that I'm the implementer. That's for sure. If he tells me we need this or do that or whatever, then I'm like, boom, I'm on it and I'm getting it. I'm implementing it right away. It takes him to share, share that vision with me in order to get us to what the next steps are and that's what makes this the simple goals and they are just giving you seven here you don't have to fill them all out maybe have one or two goals especially if you're just starting out and then they have the rocks and the rocks are just some of the major steps to getting that goal like that they they call it rocks but these are just some of the it's
1: a priority
0: you know, the bigger yeah the bigger yeah. steps to get and, to and achieving what, that goal what
1: gina, what gina wickman found with his clients is that his clients like the name rocks because, you know, <laughs> that story of the rock and filling the canister that the college professor Right. Knew. Yeah.
0: And the sand and, and the, yeah, the pebbles and, the ground, and stuff. The I stuff. I was going to try to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so
1: people like the idea of rocks. The, I call them priorities and whether you call them rocks or priorities or, or whatever, there's various names for it. The idea is that you're thinking about those priorities and you're writing them down. And now, yeah. when you write them down, you'll see in his list here, he's got a box for who. Now you're assigning accountability.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and accountability is another one of my top ten commandments for success. Is you got to have accountability. And this is the biggest problem. I ask uh, clients who are who are you know prospects who are interested in talking to me about coaching. I say, who holds you accountable now? And the answer I typically get is no one. <laughs> And I said, well, it could be, but I asked him, I said, how's that working for you? <laughs> you know? And I said, is that working that good? I said, or sometimes he'll say, my wife holds me accountable. I said, well, can she fire you? She, he goes, no, he can't. She can't. Then that's not accountability. <laughs> so, but, but accountability is really very important uh, because people need to be held accountable. And of course, if you're going to hold people accountable, you got to make sure they have the talent, the skills, the strengths, the resources to get the job done. You can't just sit there and throw people in in a mosh pit and expect them to come out unscathed.
0: Yeah. So the last one here on your list is focus on how you and your underlying assumptions question everything and everyone. This is the most important factor in executing a strategy.
1: Yeah, that's focus on how. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I missed that. I missed focus on how. So the discipline of execution is rigorous. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna think of again the example that I give in here about Abraham Lincoln, his war aim. Okay, he said, what was his war aim? His war aim was to preserve the union. Very simple war. Everybody and anybody could understand that. Okay. Then what he did was he went to Winfield Scott, and he said, I need a strategy to achieve this war aim. And Winfield Scott came up with with what was called the Anaconda Plan. And that's basically what the North executed in winning the Civil War, the most destructive war in our history. Okay, And so by focusing on how, what you're doing is you're sitting down and say, "Okay, this is our war aim. This is what we want to accomplish. This is where we're going. How are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. what resources do we need? Do Are we lacking any resources? Are we lacking people? You have resources are a number of things. So we're looking at each one of those resources and seeing how we're doing. We're questioning that. We're questioning what assumptions are we making? Okay. And that's that rigor of execution, the discipline of execution, where you're facing reality. Larry Bossidy, who wrote a book called Execution, calls it that In its essence, execution is facing reality, and most people don't face reality very well. And I would agree with that as a person who's led thousands of workshops and done tens of thousands of one-on-one problem-solving things with people in those workshops, Okay, not to mention that my clients over the last 25 years. But people don't face reality very well. And there's a reason for that, I think, in my mind. Uh, The reason is because if you face reality, now you have to do something. And that embodies a risk.
0: That's well said. I think that we did a podcast a, a couple months ago where we're trying to navigate the goal setting and how to do it in a very surreal world. Our world is very surreal because of social media, because of cultural changes and stuff like that. And I think that the country too is also facing changes and coming from all different angles, whether it's the, from the pandemic or mandates or this or that information, disinformation, and it makes it harder to face reality even more than before. So if we're already that way to begin with, and then you put us in this really surreal world, it just makes it impossible. Good point. And harder than ever to succeed. Good point. Okay, let's go over. I want to talk about your. So, you attended a. Tim Hughes works for SpaceX, right? Elon Musk's company. And you sent me over a, a printout of handout of some notes that you took from him. Tell me about that experience. How did you get to that, get to be listening to him talk about the SpaceX?
1: My father went to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He was from New Jersey. He was an all-state athlete. He got a scholarship there. This was in the 30s. Graduated there in 1941. And so he had a Jesuit education. And I have eight sisters. So what he wanted to do, and no brothers, so he wanted to get me out of the house. So he sent me to Georgetown Preparatory School in seventh grade at the tender age of 11 years old. Oh, wow. And I uh, was never a very good student. I struggled there, but I loved it. I played football and and loved that. And I've stayed in touch with many of my classmates since then. And Georgetown Prep has an alumni group, business group. And Tim Hughes is a graduate of Georgetown Prep. And he is the senior vice president and general counsel of SpaceX. So he's like a right-hand man to Elon Musk. And uh, so he gave a talk to a bunch of us prep alumni. There's about 50 guys that showed up for this talk. So I took notes. And uh, after the thing was over, I said, Tim, uh, it's great to meet you. And we talked a little bit. And we got a picture. I had a picture taken. Somebody with my camera said, take a picture. I was the only one in the room I asked him for a picture. And uh, so when I came home, I compiled my notes and did some more research on SpaceX and then produced a report that I offer to people for free. So if anybody wants to get that, uh, I do need to change my phone number in there because that's not up to date. But that's the background. So, okay. Tim. Tim is a prep grad, like myself, and the last two Supreme Court judges were prep grads, not Amy Cohen and Barrett, obviously, because she's a woman. Prep right. is an all-male all all, school. All-boys, uh, uh, okay.
0: Yeah, Brett,
1: Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch were both prep grads. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, is a prep grad. He was there when I was there at prep. He was a couple of years younger than me. So a lot of these guys are very humble, but, but they go on to great careers. Yeah. You know, Like Tim Hughes. Yeah, and this was his story about how SpaceX went from a garage operation to 6,000 employees.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I'm always reading tidbits about Elon Musk. I find him fascinating. I don't know why, but I guess it's like, how does he do it? It's always in the back of your mind because you're like, He just, he
1: he thinks differently.
0: Yeah, he does. He certainly does. And it's not been easy either. It's not to say that it's not easy for him, but it is fascinating. He's just an odd character, but, and then you think, okay, well, who works for him? And that's the thing that I think that I find fascinating when they do their launches and stuff that it really is truly about the mission and just allowing people to not just be themselves, but be their best self. I always, I love that. I'll stop sharing my screen so we can talk more about it. But I think that when I do read stories, I just love that part where they're just, it's just about the mission and it's accelerating people based on their talents and abilities, which sounds so beautiful. I know it's not perfect.
1: and, And the mission is clear. And it's like the Navy SEALs don't have to recruit yeah. Every everybody knows they're the best of the best, and everybody in the Navy or other forces they want to be a part of the special operators. Right. And right. so they attract; they don't recruit. And yeah. Elon Musk does the same thing. I'll guarantee you that people, young engineers, are knocking the doors down to work at SpaceX mm-hmm. because the mission is challenging. And it's really been interesting to see because this talk was done in 2017. So that's three years ago. Mm-hmm. And Tim was talking about certain things that have come true since then. It's really yeah. amazing to see it. Right. So talk, but the main thing here are just there's four ideas about how they you know do that. One is to the importance of a mission and why it matters, the importance of solving problems, how to deal with failure effectively, because again, they're in a high-risk business. Rockets. Right. Right. (laughs) And then just your people. Analyze your people. What kind of talent do you have, as Traction's author, Gino Wickman, would say, who's on the bus? Do you have the right people on the bus? Yeah. Okay. I like
0: these questions, though, because they're personal questions. They inspire or initiate introspection. And that's where I find this. It's just on page two where you've broken it down is analyze your mission. Is your company's mission challenging and does it inspire you and your employees? And that's that's part of the team. If you can't get people to get behind you, maybe your mission is not challenging or not Interesting enough,
1: one of the one of the main things that you want as a business leader, president, CEO, leader, whatever your title is, one of the things you want is you want fully engaged employees. You want people who bring their heart and soul and their mind and the one hundred percent of them to the table every day. That's why it's so important to know what their strengths are, because one of the questions that the Gallup organization asks is do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? Because if you're not doing what you do best every day, that's a waste. And people who are doing what they do best are fully engaged. And when you have fully engaged employees, guess what that does? That leads to happier customers and clients. Because people can feel that people can feel if you're people. Pick up the phone and dial some company and see you can tell. Yeah. That person who picks up the phone fully engaged. You can yeah. tell.
0: Yeah. I okay. I I I swear to god that's part of what makes just customer conversion so easy for us is just answering the phone and
1: that's where Not it just
0: answering it joyfully, but just being passionate, having that passion. And you can't fake it. You can't. No, fake you it. can't. No, you can't. And you
1: can't fake it. So right down to the, on your org chart, the people at the bottom, they have to be engaged. Everybody in the organization has to be fully engaged. And there's ways to do that. There's ways to motivate employees. One of the biggest problems that I run into with clients is they try to motivate employees by bonuses pay, yeah. and pay, things like that. And again, Herzberg is famous for this study. He calls it the two-factor theory of motivation. And again, I'd be happy to send people a picture of this, what this looks like, because it's so enlightening when I teach it to my clients. And what it is that he found that there were hygiene factors at work, and there were motivating factors at work. And that's why he calls it the two-factor theory, okay? And when you have good hygiene, pay is good, the bonus structure is good, the layout of the place is it's clean, the bathrooms are clean, et cetera. These are hygienes. But it only gets you about halfway to full engagement. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many clients I've had, God, Jim, I give my people bonuses, but it doesn't seem to impact their behavior after about a month or so. That's because it's a hygiene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Is a hygiene. It's not a motivating factor, and and the motivating factors are things like what is the job? Does the job itself have opportunities for growth and advancement and development? So those are motivating factors in jobs. Mission: having a clear your goal as a leader is to have engaged employees. Again, heart, soul, everything, 100%. They're in, okay, because that affects the bottom line. Eventually, all right, and knowing these going back to knowing their your people's strengths and knowing their jobs and knowing how to motivate them and how to if they're not motivated, how to turn that around is so powerful because again, that's a critical driver of a business is having fully motivated employees and fully engaged yeah,
0: employees. yeah. I'll put that on
1: and, and and that's what you see at Spacex you get. 6,000 people who are fully engaged. And that's why they do amazing things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The next one is analyze your approach to solving problems. It says management complacency is toleration of a problem beyond its recognition.
1: I was taught that by one of the three managers. I worked for three international management consulting firms in my career. And I was taught that by one of them and I never forgot it because I thought it was so brilliant. Management complacency is toleration of a problem beyond its recognition. And again, I run into people all the time who are tolerating problems.
0: Yeah, yeah. And is it just, how are they doing? It? Well,
1: First of all, they, they don't have a way to solve problems. Okay, They don't know how to solve problems. So again, what I do is I give them a five-step, a simple, five-step problem-solving model. So, again, like earlier, we were talking about having a model to follow when you're doing a strategic plan. You got to have a model to solve problems as well. Okay. So, I give them a model. Traction offers a model. Uh, I use a, a slightly different model. And because I come out of the training world, and in my industry, in the training business, there's all sorts of problem solving models. So, I use a very simple one. And the biggest problem with solving problems, Kim, is that people don't define what the problem is. I found this in my interactions when I was leading workshops all the time, and I did 27,000 of these. This was just in the 80s of one-to-ones, and people would stand up in a workshop, and I'd say, okay, what's the problem? And they'd say, it's blah, 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 blah. That wasn't the problem, (laughs) okay? And so I learned that people don't do a good job of solving problems. OK, they don't define them, number one. So that's the first step. Clearly define what the problem is. Yeah. OK, and so you need a model that you can use so that when you have a meeting with your team, you can say, OK, step one, let's define the problem. What is yeah. the problem?
0: Yeah, and I think most people are identifying because either it's happening to them personally is symptoms of a problem. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And and,
1: that's that's or results, (laughs) and that's an important piece of it because when you, if you think of a symptom, what gets people's attention are the symptoms. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay, but that's not the source of the problem, right? And you got to get to the source. You got to say what's the source of the problem, and it takes a discipline, a mental discipline, to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's easier, obviously, to solve a problem when sometimes and when you have less employees, but when you've got 20, 30, 50, 100 employees, it gets a little bit more. You have to definitely have that in in place. Otherwise, it it would be a disaster. Okay. So the next one is analyze your perspective on failure. I like this one. (laughs) There's lots of failure in powder coatings happening every day. Are failures something to be avoided at all costs? how do you view failure or do you embrace failures as learning opportunities that cast light on the current realities of your organization? Yeah, this is how we've grown. <laughs> totally. I guess this is my fave out of the four. <laughs> Great. And that's, all
1: saying: we fail forward to success. Yeah. And embrace failure. Again, I coached this Navy SEAL who authored this book and uh, for a year. And I recently, uh, did his, he offered a six week seal fit performance challenge, which I did and and completed and it was tough, but.
0: And you survived.
1: (laughs) I survived. And the idea is that failure is part of growth because that's where you're learning and you, that's where you can learn a great deal. Again, it's important to know how do I tend to avoid failure or not? Do I embrace it?
0: It, Yeah. And a lot of people like They give up or they they get mad. They take it out on others. These are all like symptoms of failure. And Um, and
1: failures, Kim, are grist for the problem solving mill. You you don't have to go far to look for problems that you can jump on and start solving.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of American ingenuity too. Yeah. And obviously we all are rooting for, nobody wants to see a rocket fail on that launch, whether it's NASA or Elon Musk (laughs) and SpaceX, or I was like, I hope Jeff Bezos doesn't really have a great ride, but I think he did.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting if you think of SpaceX as the, the numerous times they failed with their rockets, you know, and, and now you see these rockets come back to Earth and land. To me, it's crazy. It, it's yeah. it's in, incredible that they figured out how to do that. Yeah. It's mind boggling. But they didn't, the first one they did didn't land. No, it didn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think space is really exciting. I have a space connection because my mom got to work on the L100s, L100, and then Apollo after that. Just happened to be going through some of her old things. She passed away in 95. And it's just always amazing to see the pins, the buttons, the memorabilia that she kept and how, I guess, the growth of America was happening that like Mm -hmm space was it after the war. And so it was an exciting time for America, manufacturing in general and stuff. And I'm glad that she was able to be part of something and be a woman and part of something like that. Analyze your people. This is the last one. Do you, one, hire for talent Two define the right outcomes? Three, focus on strengths and four, find the right fit. We've actually talked about all of these. It's funny how this one's the last one when we started the whole talk about that, all those four things about people and stuff. It? Yeah. yeah. It's funny how it all just comes down to those last four.
1: Where this information came from was from the Gallup organization. Everybody knows about the Gallup poll, if you're not hiding under a rock. Right. And, The Gallup does a massive amount of research, and what they did was they researched 80,000 managers in 400 companies around the world, and they found out that these managers did four things. And this is what made them different, made them great at what they did. And these are the four things they did, is they didn't try to fit people square pegs in the round holes. They hired for talent. They knew what talent they needed, and then they went out and looked for people who had those talents. OK, and and talents are defined by Gallup as a recurring pattern of thinking, feeling or behaving that can be productively applied. And talents are picked up early in life. By the time we're about 13 or 14 or 15, our talents are pretty much set.
0: So that's different from abilities and
1: ability is something kind of a subset of talent.
0: Okay. talents are,
1: again, these recurring patterns of behavior. Think about things, Kim, that you or your audience think about it as well. Things you're drawn to. I love to read and I have a personal library of over 1500 books. My wife tells me that when I die, she's going to burn me up with all my books (laughs) because they're everywhere in our house. And so that's called the input talent is I, I collect information. That's why yeah. I can remember all this stuff. People say, how do you remember all this? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a talent, okay? <laughs> and then what a strength is, it basically a developed talent. So a strength is an activity or an action that, can, that you do consistently and at near perfect. Mm-hmm. And you get an in, internal sense of satisfaction when you do that. That's where this information came from. It was from these 80,000 managers who do things at world-class levels. Number one, hire for talent. And uh, Gallup, when they first did these studies, they found there are 39 talents. And there are three categories, striving talents, thinking talents, and relating talents. So one of the things I'll do is I'll send that list of 39 to my clients. I say, For this upcoming role that you want to hire for, pick the top three from each category. Top three striving talents, top three thinking talents, and top three relating talents that you want for that role. And it just really frames the role for them beautifully. Yeah. And then once once you hire the person, what you do is you say, okay, here are the outcomes I want you to produce. You'll tell them how to do it because they already have the talent. Here's what I want you to accomplish. And you get very specific and smart about. I like that. Yeah, and then you focus on their strengths. Again, their strengths are what a talent. What a strength is talent times an investment of time, energy, effort, practice, knowledge, accruing skills and knowledge. Okay, so that's what a strength is. A strength is a developed talent. Okay.
0: I think this is something that we need to focus on more as an industry too. You probably know this from writing in Paint and Coatings uh, magazine and that is that some of these industries are really rather niche and although they're poised for growth, we have an aging uh, population of people that have been in the industry for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and then we have th- Nobody underneath. Like, where are we going to get these people? How are we going to grow without people? How are we going to educate these yeah, people? Right, exactly. There's nothing in place. It's all just DIY or learn on your own or get hired at a company and learn the way they do it, and then you're just learning it their way. But there are other ways to learn and stuff. And
1: again, I, you want to you want to hire people who have those talents, those innate talents that you're looking for that those particular positions in the organization. And one of the comments that I've gotten, actually, from one of of the companies I work for in this industry, it wasn't the owner of the company. He echoed it, but it really came from his director of quality. He said, Jim, with what you've taught me about hiring for talent is it's totally changed how I put people in place. He goes, before, I would just throw a body into a position. (laughs) He goes, I don't do that anymore. Is I look and say, what talents do I want? What strengths do I want? And I put people, I look for people in the company who have those talents and strengths. And and then I s- talked to them. I said, look, would you be interested in this position? And he says, it's night and day. It's made a night difference. That's finding the right fit. That's the last one. You're putting a, a square peg in a square hole. Right.
0: Yeah, in the right configured. Right. Opening. This has been great. Thank you so much. Now, I want to... Talk to you about some of the other things that are behind you. You and I have a special connection to some karate. I see some karate pictures back there. Tell us more about your interest in the karate and how you got into it and stuff like that. Just share it. I'm a
1: black belt in an Okinawan style of karate do. Okay, that's the proper name for it. Karate do means the way of the empty hand, and I saw when I was a young, probably 13 year old, I saw a karate demonstration on film and it blew my mind. Then several years later, I was at a Naval Academy prep school. This is a year after high school because I graduated. I was young and I wanted to play. I wanted to follow my father's footsteps and play football. He played for the Philadelphia Eagles and the Washington Redskins. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never got his size, but I wanted to play and so I figured if I had another year of growth, that would help. And, and I did play in the college. And my claim to fame is I play with Randy White of the Dallas Cowboys, Hall of Fame, <laughs> Dallas Cowboys, The University of Maryland. I walked on this spring training. But when I was at this school, there was a guy who had come from Bangkok. He was an American. His father was a diplomat. He'd come from Bangkok and he was a black belt in Taekwondo. And I remember he would do katas, which are pre-arranged forms. I didn't know what they were called at the time. And I was just amazed at the precision and the strength and the movement and the flexibility. And that appealed to me. And then he started breaking rocks with his hands. (laughs) I thought that's really cool. So he ended up going to the Naval Academy. I went uh, to the University of Maryland. We circled back together a couple of years later. And then I st- that's when I started to study at University of Maryland. It was an extension class. And I started studying there. When I moved to California, I got my green belt, moved to California. I looked for a similar school and found one. And that's where I earned my black belt. And uh, I've also studied Aikido. Those of you who know about Steven Seagal, he's a master yeah. of Aikido. He's a Hanshi, which is a six degree black belt. He's very advanced. And uh, I studied Aikido for two and a half years. And then I studied Ying Pai Pai Kung Fu and got my purple sash for a year, five days a week. And then I've studied hand-to-hand combat what's called SCARS, Special Combat Aggressive Reaction System. And I've studied with Tim Larkin his program. So I've studied the martial arts. I do Tai Chi. I just love it. I love the movement. I love the power. I love the ability, the balance, the strength, the flexibility. And so I just enjoy it. And I always have. And I decided that what I would do is leverage that. My, my company is called Business Street Fighter Consulting. Business is a street fight. Yeah. And it's one you don't want to lose. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's kind of my tagline, if you will. This yeah. today is a street fight and it's one you can't afford to lose. OK, so yeah. I, I tie in my martial background to to my training.
0: Yeah. And that's why I, I like that approach, because you took something that is a passion of yours and you are relating it to your own business. And that to me, when I. Read your article first, and then I went clicked over to your website. I realized that you are through and through the life coach or the business coach that you are because you've taken your passion and you've also morphed it in and I- extrapolated on it from a business perspective too. And, you know,
1: and, and and Kim, the other thing too is there's I was actually part of a team that built a multi million dollar company. And I know what it's like to do that. And then I wanted to increase my business skills. And so I went and worked for three international management consulting firms and learn and put more to skills. And plus, I've had my own business since 1994. I know what it is to build a business. I know what it's I know the, the trials and tribulations of building a business, of hiring people, getting the right people, and uh, solving problems and all that. And that's the kind of of knowledge and expertise I like to impart to my clients. And they seem to appreciate it greatly. So.
0: Okay. So how do we get a hold of you? I'm going to scroll down to the bottom. Is it just simply just emailing you?
1: Yeah, you can email me there at Jim C. at BSF.consulting or okay. you can call me at 919-263-1256. That's my home office landline. Okay. You can call between you know, office hours, basically. I'm um, Eastern time. I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And if you want to talk about your situation, we can talk about it. I don't uh, push anybody into coaching because it's a special kind of relationship. And uh, like I say, I've been doing it. I've been training people for 44 years. I had one person tell me once, he says, Jim, you're expensive. I said, I said, you can get coaching free. Just call your brother-in-law. <laughs> and i said it's coaching you get what you pay for and, right and if you want free coaching i'll tell you there's a lot of people who will give you free coaching you know just ask your sister-in-law or your brother in law hey uh, how can i improve my behavior they'll tell you <laughs>
0: for free yeah i think the people that don't know much about coaching it, usually you'll see it uh, when you start to see a coach's register of clients, you realize they're all mostly people that want to get ahead or want to overcome something that just seems to be a block and they haven't figured out the problem. So you have to discover the problem first in order to solve it. So it's the same thing with your business. And I think you, you probably can do both personal? Because it is related.
1: When I was leading workshops in the 80s, I'll tell you in your audience, the schedule that I ran is I was on stage 42 weekends a year. okay? And Monday through Thursday night. So I led workshops Monday through Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. And on Saturday and Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And I did that for 13 years. We worked 72 hours a week. And my mentor, Paul, he was a writer for the Smothers Brothers show and laughing. So he had a great sense of humor. So one of the first staff rules was that we only worked a half a day. But since a day is 24 hours, that meant 12 hours a day.
0: (laughs) That's a good way to put it.
1: (laughs) And so that's what we signed on for. This was again back in 1977. And so we worked 72 plus hours per week. But Look, we were fully engaged, all right? We loved what we were doing. We had a great mission. And we ended up building a California statewide training company. And so I used to hop. I'd be in a jet like you'd be in your car because every night I'd be in a different city in, in, in California. A major market, San Francisco, San Jose, LA, Irvine, and San Diego. And we built a great company and it was great. And it gave me an opportunity to be a trainer and then rise to a senior trainer with this organization. And that's where I led over 3000 workshops and it was a great foundation. So I hear things differently because of all that experience.
0: Yeah, you certainly are just the way you speak. You walk the walk, you talk the talk kind of thing. And I think that people, if you do want change, you have to dedicate Some time to it. If you come think about anything, right? Especially if you have big goals. I think there's some really fairly good gaps and opportunities in powder coating in the next 10 years, 10, 20 years. And I guess it's the purpose of the podcast is to get people's minds going on how we can solve our own problems in the industry. It's going to come from us, it's not going to come from outside. Yeah. I'm always encouraged to talk to somebody that has the capability to help others grow and stuff. So thanks for being the first coach on the podcast today. I
1: I am so grateful and it's been a pleasure. You're a total joy (laughs) and it's an honor to to have been here today. And I hope that your audience gets something out of that and sees some things that they can do right away. And that's the thing. This is a stickiness and can you listen to this podcast, and then take something that, that touches you and go out and do something.
0: Right. Take that action.
1: Yeah, Take and, that action. And create a mission or create a vision right. or commit yourself to learning how to solve problems more effectively and adopting some kind of model. Okay. Yeah. And of course, they can reach out to me if they have a question. They don't have to be a coaching client. They can right. say, hey, if I listened to the podcast and I have a question about X. Yeah. You know, I'd be happy to help them.
0: Yeah. And I will make sure to put all the links that we talked about today in the link in the description on our YouTube channel. If you do follow us on the YouTube channel, just make sure you subscribe, like, and subscribe. Of course you can find us on all of the podcast platforms out there, Google, Spotify, Apple. There's many more that we're on. IHeart, I think, and just go to to Rosscoat.com. What's that?
1: Thank you for doing all that.
0: Oh, yeah. Running a podcast is quite an an adventure. (laughs) So (laughs) we're always growing. We always seem to have more ideas coming down the pipe. And it's where we're starting to realize that we need to start building that team. Yeah. And those people that are going to help us get there. Yeah. Awesome. Everybody have a great day. Thanks for coming and listening to us today. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show and have a great day. Aloha. Aloha.